at Evergreen, we don't use the term addict. We, we recognize that individuals are coming to us for a variety of reasons and may have become dependent or addicted to uh, opioids also from a variety of reasons. Many may have been a workplace injury that then they got overprescribed pain medication and, and it kind of went from there. As I'm sure you're aware, a lot of different pathways into addiction. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is Steve Woolworth, Chief Executive Officer at Evergreen Treatment Services. They have been working to transform the lives of individuals and their communities through innovative and effective addiction and social services in Western Washington since 1973. The clinics in King and Thurston counties offer medication-assisted treatment for adults with opioid use disorders and other medications with supportive wraparound services, including medical monitoring, counseling, and drug screens. They also support REACH, the team which provides street-based case management and outreach services to adults living outside the greater Seattle area. Welcome, Steve. Let's just jump right in and start talking about what Evergreen Treatment Services does. We operate in both King and Thurston counties. We specifically are known uh, are known for sort of the we're a two pillared organization. On one side, we have our, our Reach programs, which uh, operate exclusively in King County, and Reach is focused on homeless outreach and jail diversion, jail reentry, and uh, has really been, I think, a pioneer in uh, harm reduction approach to serving folks with behavioral health conditions and uh, specifically also chronic homeless populations. And on the other side of the organization is our clinics where we have uh, opiate treatment programs. We serve over 3,000 people a year in our clinics in downtown Seattle, in Renton, and in Lacey. And those are uh, opiate treatment programs. So we utilize methadone maintenance program in addition to psychosocial counseling, additional kind of buprenorphine, which is another type of, of medication that is that is used used um, to prevent over those who are struggling with opioid uh, dependence. At Evergreen, we don't use the term addict. We, I love that. We, we recognize that individuals are coming to us for a variety of reasons and may have become dependent or addicted to uh, opioids also from a variety of reasons. Many may have been a workplace injury that then they got overprescribed uh, pain medication and, and it kind of went from there. As I'm sure you're aware, a lot of different pathways into addiction. But Opioid treatment program started in this country in 1973. That's when the uh, the Food and Drug Administration uh, essentially gave clearance for methadone um, as a uh, as a medication to prevent overdose. And methadone uh, has its history in in Germany. It was, I believe, developed in the late 1930s, and then I think was uh, brought to the United States in the late 1940s. And I'm sorry if you're picking up some background noise here. I'm outside. <laughs> Sounds and like the they're having fun today. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, those are my neighbors. So methadone was created in Germany in the, in the late 1930s. It was brought to the United States in the, in the late 40s. It became approved for the use in the, the treatment of heroin addiction in the early 1970s. Uh, Evergreen actually opened in 1973. So I believe we were certainly one of the very first in the country and possibly the first in Washington state. I don't know that history specifically. It's a controlled substance and we are regulated by the DEA and the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration. And so the way methadone works is it's what's called an agonist, opioid replacement. It starts with, you have to get a medical, uh, we, we can do same, if somebody came to us, walked in and said, I need help and I'm, I'm struggling and I want to get on methadone, we can actually do treatment on the very same day. We just, we have to have a, 
uh, on-site medical assessment and physical um, before we can dose anyone. And dosing usually starts at a at a very low level, uh, what's called sort of the induction phase, just to stabilize somebody. And um, for the first 30 days or so, we really pay a lot of attention to kind of where their level's at and making sure that, that we we gradually increase the dosage. And essentially we move towards a maintenance protocol, which starts with daily dosing. And uh, once somebody is, is stable on methadone and, and we believe that have lowered the risk, then they don't necessarily need to come in every day. On, on a, they can, we can start to do take home doses, but that usually takes a while to build up till you can do that. But essentially it, it, you know, it has shown, it's the only, uh, the only drug that has shown 75% uh, up to 75% reduction in uh, drug overdoses or drug poisonings. And so it, it has been around for nearly 50 years and continues to be uh, very effective in allowing folks to, to get help get back their lives. Now, having said that, it's important to recognize that medication-assisted treatment is really about overdose prevention. And as uh, our clinic services programs are much broader than that, they involve counseling, they involve other psychosocial interventions, because we really, you know, we believe in treating the whole person and in increasing recovery capital and all that that means. And it is also because we are very focused on harm, redu harm reduction, both from a philosophical and practical standpoint, it is possible that individuals can be dosing on methadone and still using other substances. Um, that's not that uncommon to see folks still struggling with methamphetamines, for example, or maybe drinking alcohol. So um, it's, it's complex, but um, but it has shown to be effective. And, you know, one of the thing that's, things that was very attractive to me uh, about coming to Evergreen, I'm only in my seventh month as chief executive officer, is that Evergreen has been a part of a lot of clinical trials research. And we're a part of the, the National Institute of Drug Abuse's clinical trials network. When they started their, their Pacific Northwest node in 2001, we were a founding community treatment provider. And so we have been collaborating closely with the University of Washington uh, Internal Medicine at Harborview to, to look at research and the efficacy of, of what we do. And so it's been a site for a lot of, of evidence-based of evidence -based care um, as a result of our collaboration with research entities like the University of Washington. Can you say more about harm reduction for somebody that maybe hasn't heard that before? Harm reduction, more broadly, really... It's a public health response to problem behavior uh, or high-risk behavior more broadly. Harm reduction has emerged really from the 1970s and 80s as an alternative to the uh, to the punitive response towards you know that was really driven by the war on drugs. It it start it really begins with the premise is that you you have to engage with with individuals where they're at in their life, and I think also recognizes that that millennia human human beings have been ingesting substances and that it may be difficult to to it, it may be unrealistic to assume that we're everybody can can be free of of substance use and all that that entails and so harm reduction comes from the standpoint of seeking to reduce harm. And there's been a lot of successful harm reduction campaigns. So if we think about drunken driving, for example, the use of a designated driver is a harm reduction practice. And if you look at the huge reduction in automobile or drunken driving related deaths since the advent of 
a designated driver protocol, it's been substantial. Needle exchanges were came out in the 1980s as a way to decrease the risk of, of HIV or hepatitis C. And since the advent of needle exchanges in which clean needles are provided to, to those who are injecting injecting drugs, uh, we've seen a, a significant decrease in the transmission of HIV and hep C through those practices. And so you, you can kind of kind of scale out from there, but harm reduction really comes from that place of first seeking to um, engage with individuals. And from a service provider's perspective, first and foremost, it's about recognizing the inherent worth in every human being. It is a little windy on his microphones, and he said recognizing the inherent value in every human being. Recognizing that everyone's quality of life um, is important and that abstinence or uh, recovery may not be something that's realistic at that and, and it may not even be a realistic end goal. So what are the smaller incremental steps we can take to reduce risk and harm in, in, in people's lives? And so it, it really comes from that standpoint, harm reduction, we can talk about it kind of broadly as what's happening right now in the policy environment. We're seeing a public health approach to what have been formally considered criminal justice, the domain of, of, of the criminal justice system and law enforcement. And we've invested for over 40 years in mass incarceration in this country to extremely destructive effects uh, in communities of color and for many individuals who uh, may actually only be a recreational drug user. And so uh, harm reduction is is emerging um, really from the standpoint of evidence and, and an evidence-based approach uh, that I would say is, is we're seeing the ascendance of a public health model um, starting to starting to challenge the traditional cornerstone of of our society seeing these as criminal justice law enforcement related issues. I know you can't see me but I'm just nodding yes yes the place I've seen the I don't know if it's the biggest but I really consider it harm reduction is the pregnant moms that get in the program because it saves the babies saves them and then they're getting monitored and that's that was kind of my first introduction. I was so grateful for a program that would do that uh, because people that don't know coming off heroin is uh, or meth is very awful, right? And so this helps sustain them through the pregnancy. And and I think if we if we look at public attitudes, there's so much shaming and blaming around substance use and addiction that it's it's really difficult to to kind of get behind some of that and, and to, to work with folks where they're at. And so, especially through our REACH programs where, uh, where we uh, long have supported, well, we've, we've been operating the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program mm -hmm. uh, in partnership with the Public Defenders Association, which has made a really significant difference uh, in diverting individuals from criminal, the criminal justice system, uh, folks with uh, chronic behavioral health conditions, um, folks who may be sex workers, um, and that has been evaluated through some, some, some randomized trials and has shown to be very effective uh, in terms of reducing future arrests and assisting individuals with housing and employment. And, um, and, and, you know, those individuals may, as we work with them, you know, they may be continuing to use. And so our focus isn't coercive and isn't focused on the, the punitive response, but really about what can we do 
what can we do tomorrow and what can we do the next next day to, to help keep you safe, to help reduce harm and to start taking some steps towards an improved quality of life. I love what you said about valuing each person because that's the biggest thing I've seen that the public, uh, maybe the views is they see a homeless person and they think, why doesn't he work? Or they see drug addicts, you know, that's what they call them. And, uh, and I did until today. We see, see them and there is, there seems to be so much judgment. And I'm actually a recovery coach with the Everett Recovery Cafe. And oh, okay. I have seen so many women get a new life and get their kids and get housing. And because they've had assistance from these programs, I think the families think you get off drugs and then you're just right back to normal. I don't think people realize what a process. And so I love what you're doing because it feels like it's following them through the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We also, it would help if we could could see the connections between incarceration, homelessness, addiction, mental illness, our response to these are all very, there's, we've created a lot of interdependencies in the way that we respond to these. Like, so somebody who's transitioning back from prison based on what their crime history is, it may be very difficult for them to find housing, for example, as a result of, of having a felony record. And so that can be a driver of homelessness, right? As we know, and people get increasing, increasingly anxious or depressed with their circumstances, they may be more likely to start using substances to medicate or uh, for any number of reasons. And so there, there really is a deep inner relationship among all of these things. And I, I, I think the public health approach that's starting to become more ascendant in at least locally, we're not there at all nationally by any amount of means, but we are seeing a lot of local ju- jurisdictions who are making investments in harm reduction approaches, we are starting to see, I think, some some progress in a way that's much more humanistic, mm-hmm. much fairer, and, and more equity-driven, especially as it relates to the racial disproportionality we see in those systems. For me, what I experienced was the us and them, and then realizing that they that I could be them, you know, we're like a paycheck away from something happen or an operation. And the best story I heard was a, a nurse who was addicted, lost everything. And she said she used to sit in the hospital break room and look at the people getting the needles exchanged and see them outside the hospital. And she said, I made fun of them. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, I find myself in that position. And it's so unbelievable, you know, to them and the family. And to think that, you know, they're not these terrible people doing terrible things. They're us that, you know, they got into something they didn't know how to manage or whatever. Right, right. And and I've, uh, since, since I started in January, I have been, on a number of occasions gone out and shadowed some of our outreach workers who go out into uh, the homeless encampments um, up and down the I-5 corridor. And I think what you find in a lot of encampments uh, are individuals that, yes, at one point had very stable lives that were working and, and you know, had healthy relationships and, and for one circumstance or another are, are now in, in a very difficult situation. And it's in many instances, our response some, is sometimes uh adds to it, right? It, 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 we can actually cause more harm by our institutional response to some of what can be personal problems or can be community issues or societal issues. And, and so harm reduction really comes out of response to that is to say, okay, let's let's really seek to build some some trust in a, in a relationship that, you know, we're, we're going to be here tomorrow and whenever you're ready, 
we can take a step forward together and really looking to establish a working alliance mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and to help navigate systems to in, improve the response of our care systems. So, you know, in many respects, as, as you hear conversations right now that may be difficult for folks to navigate through, like around defunding the police, harm reduction response and, and opportunities for services and programs that come from that perspective already constitute an alternative community safety model. There are already efforts and practices underway, many of which are supported by law enforcement themselves who are saying, listen, we don't want to go out and we didn't sign up for this. Right. <laughs> um, right? And, and I mean, even in Seattle, the majority of, of calls that police respond to are non-criminal calls. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our, our, our law enforcement, uh, our police officers, the the best equipped to be responding to some of those situations. Yeah, I mean, I, I can go on, but I, I think those these are really important conversations for our communities. And I would like you to go on a little more about that because I was listening to a podcast where uh, policemen were on there and they said, you know, we're responding to calls we really shouldn't be responding to. And so what is the answer to that, getting more social workers in, in with the police to go out to those calls? Or how do you see that kind of thing helping out? I don't think there's one solution per mm -hmm. se, but I do think that uh, as it relates to issues of homelessness, as it relates to issues of, of addiction, there's a lot of things that we can do that I, d I don't think necessarily require a law enforcement approach because it, it's not about violence. It's not about necessarily safety. It's about desperation and it's about um, uh, responding to folks who may have complex behavioral health conditions that uh, that require, you know, having somebody show up to somebody who may be suffering from paranoia or who's in active withdrawal and, or, or what have you, but having somebody, you know, having folks show up with guns is maybe really inappropriate to what that person needs at that time uh, with regards to what the very next step is. And so I, I think there are, I think this is an opportunity for us to, to think through ways we can set up alternative models around community response and uh, that, that promote community safety that, that aren't led by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's not to say that law enforcement isn't needed. Right. Uh, that's, just, that's just to say that as it relates to a lot of these issues, and especially issues that have been historical to communities of color where we see at times an, an over response from law enforcement uh, we have an opportunity here to not only address human needs but also to address human and civil rights as well in a, in a, in a much more equitable fashion with, with that said how how does somebody listening jump on board with this how do we help advocate for this what's a good channel for for people who want to help and make a difference well, I, I think people need to be paying attention. And I think, you know, in Seattle right now, there's a lot of conversations happening at the Seattle City Council level with regards to what the budget is going to look like. And, and, and I recognize that the demands of the moment are forcing us into the here and now. I'm always in favor of a longer view. Where do we want to be in five years? Mm -hmm. Where do we want to be in 10 years? And trying to develop a, a, a realistic plan to to get there. And I, I think it would be really helpful from a design standpoint if we if we think about what, what are some alternative systems look like so we can invest and in, in, in build them uh, as we make this transition. Mm -hmm. um, my, my one concern is if we go 
if we go too far at one time, will that actually sabotage the development of some of these models because mm -hmm. we haven't made the transition in a, in a graduated fashion? So I would encourage your listeners to, one, to look beyond the headlines, to to, to read the proposals that are available on, on, on websites for the, the Seattle City Council uh, and, and to engage in the conversation. This is such great information. Before we wrap this up, let's talk a little bit about how people can donate, and also you have a fundraiser coming up on the 30th. One more thing, too, is uh, your website, and I want to put out your website, evergreentx.org. That's evergreentx.org. So tell us a little bit about your fundraiser and how to donate to Evergreen Treatment Services. Well, I, I hope that for, for your listeners who may not know who Evergreen Treatment Services is, I, I hope uh, we are a nonprofit organization. We need uh, as much community awareness about what we do and as much community investment around what we can learn more about our work. In 2019, we supported uh, said over 3,000 individuals with drug counseling and medication-assisted treatment. We helped over 600 uh, individuals. We supported over 600 individuals to maintain their housing. We placed uh, over 500 individuals in housing, and we helped 200 move into permanent housing. And so we are part of the solution to help mm -hmm. address some of these, uh, what would be considered chronic and intractable problems in our community to help improve the lives and well-being of the, of the, of the men and women we serve. I always say to the parents that come to me, I say, find an organization that you can get behind that would support your child and give to them. Donate to them because rather than giving money to the child who's not yet ready for recovery. And so can people donate? They absolutely can donate. And, and you can find that on, on our website. And we also are going to be having a special event at the uh, on September 30th where we're going to be welcoming. It's going to be uh, emceed by Mark Wright from uh, King 5. And mm -hmm. it's going to uh, feature um, Maya Salovitz, who's a author, um, New York Times bestselling author who wrote just uh, wrote a book called um, Unbroken Brain that chronicles her own experiences with with addiction. Um, and she uh, has a lot to say uh, about how we think about and have thought about addiction and is is trying to articulate a way through um, some of the some of the things we may have, we, we, we've got stuck around, which we talked about earlier as it relates to public attitudes and beliefs about addiction. It's a very provocative read and she'll be joining us and that will be a uh, online fundraiser. And so I encourage any of your listeners who want to join us for that. You can find more information on our website. Okay, so go to Evergreen Services, sure. Evergreen tx.org that's evergreen tx.org i think i have read her book it's fairly new right it is i think 2016 or 2017 yeah. yeah yeah very good book and i think there we go thank you i know you can't see it but <laughs> it's a beautiful <laughs> blue book the more educated we are the more that we're going to help because i know that sometimes people just react because they have a belief system about these, you know, parentheses, these people. And I know that when I work with them, I love them. They are just people like us who need a different kind of help. I might need help from a medical doctor. They need help with this. And so if we can change our way of thinking, and I, the CEO in you, I love that. It's like, let's go slow and build and build and make these, you know, it, it feels like that 
platform. You're building the platform to build onto so that we can make these sustainable. I love that. And so your fundraiser is September 30th. September 30th. It's online. So in order to go, we go and uh, register. Yes. I believe that listening to her would be very helpful. And I would say if you have a drug addict in your life, or what do we call them? Not drug addicts anymore. You got. I've got to work on that. What people you, who use drugs. People who use. If you have people in your life who use drugs, this would be a great way to get educated and try to understand a little more and support an amazing organization. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your uh, your interest in our organization. I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you today. In wrapping up, I want to tell you about ETS, Evergreen Treatment Center's commitment to COVID. Right now, ETS and the entire public health system need your support. ETS is a key partner in the emergency response to COVID-19 in Western Washington. The daily challenges of opioid addiction and homelessness only get tougher during a crisis like this. ETS's doctors, nurses, counselors, case managers, and outreach teams are tirelessly supporting people in recovery and keeping everyone as safe as possible. Their leadership has quickly implemented changes and new initiatives that they need to keep their clients safe from COVID-19. As they're preparing daily essential treatment services and outreach, expenses include equipment for remote workers, telehealth, personal protective equipment like masks, disposable gloves, shelter-in-place supplies, hazard pay for frontline staff, and a variety of infrastructure needs that will adapt the facility to meet the new safety guidelines. Uncertainty is everywhere right now, and they know it's hard to decide how to make the most meaningful impact. ETS has been serving our community for 47 years and will continue to provide critical services long after this crisis. They need your help to cover these unexpected costs. They say they are also need of they say they are also in need of tents and sleeping bags for people who do not have shelter. Toiletry items like hand sanitizer, men's clothing, and shoes are also needed for the case management team to distribute. All donated things could be dropped off at 1700 Airport Way South, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3. They ask that you call the front desk at 206-223-3644 or go to their website, evergreentx.org. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.